Could I get you to stand with me as we open the, the word? Please turn to Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3, reading uh, verses uh, 3-8, and then we're going to go all the way to Micah 4-7. The word of the Lord. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all sorry, equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward and the priests thereof teach for hire and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet they will lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk, everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth, I will gather her that is driven out and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth and forevermore. Dear Lord, we uh, pray that you will show us what you want us to know from your word today. I pray that you'll change our hearts in such a way that it will change our, our minds our speech, and our actions. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, please be seated. Um, Bob, could I ask that somebody would bring me a glass of water? I should have got that before we started. I really am honored to be here today. Um, I think this is the either the second or third time I've been here. I can't remember. I, I know I've been here recently, but I thought I'd been here. I think this is the third time. I don't remember things very well like that, but I do remember, um, I do remember your church. I do remember many of you. Uh, Stephen is a good friend of mine. Pastor Morris is a good friend of mine, and I'm very thankful that uh, he gets a little bit of a break as he goes to Omaha, and I've told people in the church that we are planting in Iowa, that I, I foresee a strong relationship between our church there in Iowa and your church here. Um, of course, we have the bond in Christ. We also have some particulars that are uh, very much in common. Our, our way of worship, our uh, desire for covenantal succession, and, and also I know that the Lord has put upon your hearts a desire as uh, 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 Deacon Ashton prayed this morning to bring the gospel in a holistic way here. And so I'm, I'm just very thankful to be here. And I know that this is a momentous day. I know that it is a day of, of new beginnings or perhaps of, of ending a uh, many years, many uh, sermons here. Many times have you taken the Lord's Supper here. There's been baptisms here. The Lord has been faithful. 
And I'm very honored to be preaching the last sermon here for your church. But as you know, the Lord has wonderful things in store for you. And we will be praying for you in our church. And, and our church uh, in Iowa will be starting in about five weeks from now. So I would appreciate your prayers also. Well, today's sermon is about how God deals with societies in a gracious way. And my prayer is that you will find this encouraging. The way that our passage, and really the whole book of Micah is written, I hope that you'll find this helpful. Now, um, you may not remember Micah specifically, but you probably have in mind the, 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 the prophets, the uh, pre-exilic uh, prophets that are prophesying judgment. And Micah is one of those prophets. It was a minor prophet. And so oftentimes when you read these prophets, you'll, see, you'll have long, detailed pronouncing of judgment. And these judgments are specific to nations and to cities, and they're harsh in nature. But if you zoom out from these books to see the whole message, it's not just one of tearing down. It's one also of building up. And we are familiar, I think, with this concept of tearing down and building up, of deconstructing and reconstructing in our own lives. We are told, for example, to circumcise the foreskin of our heart. And Moses brings us this word from the Lord in Deuteronomy 10. And Jeremiah says the same thing in his book in, uh, in chapter 4. There's a condemnation in the law before there is the grace of justification. There is punishment and sacrifice of sin to enable forgiveness. And, of course, there is a relationship, and, there's the, and, and there is a connection between these two things. And, and although Galatians 2.20 is not speaking about societies, it is showing God's pattern, God's grace. Listen to what Galatians 2.20 says. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the primary message today is that God's dealing with society in the same way that he deals with people is gracious. And we, as, as a church, are his ambassadors. We're the ones to present God's grace, not just to individuals, but also to societies. We're presenting them in the, in the form of warnings, in the form of what nations are falling short of, and it is a type of grace. If grace, if, if God is gracious with societies, then he has to have a way to administer that grace. And what he does is he administers it through his word, and the word comes through his people. And guess who that would be? That's us. That's us today, us as people. What I love about our passage today is that God is not telling the church just to present God's grace societally. He's also telling them how to do it. And we're going to see some of that today. We're going to see how to interact with civil and church leaders. So we'll talk about some, some tangible ways as, as vice regents to interact. And I hope that this will be helpful, again, because of what the Lord has put on Pastor Morris's heart and on your heart for this region. Now, a bit of context from the book of Micah. Micah lived and ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is a time of judgment, actually for both, Israel to the north and for Judah to the, the south. And Micah actually prophesies against both of them, but he's, he's primarily interested in the southern kingdom. Now, he writes a short time before Israel fell to Assyria. The northern kingdom fell to Assyria. Um, and he's, he's writing about 30 years before his kingdom, the kingdom of Judah to the south, falls to the Babylonians. So he did not ex experience the exile to Babylon. Uh, in fact, uh, you, you may know, uh, you may remember of the miraculous uh, uh, salvation of the Lord um, when the Babylonians were outside of Jerusalem and Hezekiah prayed and the Lord delayed that judgment. And uh, it's, it's really linked to what Micah said, because Micah prophesied to Hezekiah, to Jotham, to Ahaz, and to Hezekiah. So that's a little bit of the, of the, of the, the context, just the geopolitical context that's going on. 
Now, uh, Micah talks about the sin in Judah, and there's a lot of corruption. There's idolatry, seizure of property, failure of leadership, both in the church and in the civil magistrate. And really, what we're going to see is that this failure of leadership is specifically called out, and that in itself is a lesson, a lesson for us today. But I do hope that we will find encouragement. I hope you will find encouragement from these prophets who are living in the midst of a cursed land. The prophets are real people. And as we will see, they are equipped in the same way and with the same power as, as, uh, as we have today. And in fact, in some ways, we have more than the prophets had. We, had, we have a greater revelation. We have a greater manifestation of the Spirit that even the prophets had. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that, that as the prophets were writing, they knew of Christ and His sufferings, but they desired to look into it more. In other, way, in, in other words, they didn't have as much of an understanding of Christ and what He was going to do as we do today through His revealed Word. So, where we are going application-wise is towards a tangible way to be a Micah in Peoria and in the surrounding area. And this is going to be a message of judgment and of grace, not only to individuals, but to groups of individuals. So as we go through this, let's, let's cooperate with the Lord. Let's ask Him to, to change our hearts. Let's ask us to change what we think and what we do because there, there's a lot of changing of our minds that need to be done. We have come a long ways, even the church has come a long ways at understanding the scope of Christ's reign and what we are to do. So as we get going that direction, we'll see first that the prophet Micah was full of the power of God. Let's look at our first verse, verse 3-8. Let's read that. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his son. This is Micah's essential starting point, that he is full of the power of the Lord. It's his starting point. And it's the starting point really of any ethical message of importance worth listening to. Let's think about it. Should we really give anybody credence our credibility? Should we give him a listening ear on matters of ethical things, on, on foundational things, if he's only bringing his own opinion? That's really not worth listening to because man's ways are not the, the ways of eternal life. Micah's full of the power of the, of the Lord, and it's by his Spirit. I remember one time somebody asked me, was the Holy Spirit active in the... Uh, in the Old Testament, and it, it was a long time ago, and I actually didn't know, but of course, he's, this, the Spirit here is bringing the Word. The Spirit was in creation, wasn't He? So the Spirit is, is bringing the power of God. And like the Westminster Confession says in chapter 1, it, it, it talks about the Bible. If you haven't read Westminster Confession, at least read chapter 1. It is beautiful. And it says that mankind should believe and obey the Word of God because it is the Word of God. And our catechism question today kind of pointed that, didn't it? That's our duty. The duty of man is to follow the revealed will of God. And this is the primary way that God deals with society in a gracious way. The fact that God brings His Word, He lets a wayward nation know that it's off track. And that comes by God's grace. How would we know it if God had not brought that to us? And uh, what would it be like if God had not brought His Word? And, and, you know, some of the things that you can think of is, think about the Aztecs in South America. What was their culture like? That's sort of what a, a culture will look like if God does not bring His uh, supernatural revelation. When people today say that they aren't interested in what the Bible says about the public arena, they're, they're walking in the foolishness of their own hearts. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end 
thereof are the ways of death. Now, we, wouldn't, we, we shouldn't miss the fact that Micah's proclamation was declared tangibly in time and space. It was done by a man named Micah who got up in the morning. He got dressed like all of us. I don't know if they had toothbrushes back then, but uh, he ate some breakfast. He did some reading and praying. He had a house, you know. He had, he had, he had furniture. He looked and talked a certain way. So the, the words that he's saying here, we need to understand that they are for us, but they were initially for the local, contextual, contemporary people to listen to. You can imagine what it was like back then. Letters written and read before the king. Or maybe there was preaching before the magistrate in the town square. There might have been preaching to priests in the court of the temple. There's this dialogue going on. And as we'll see, this can be done today by us as well. Now, if you ever feel inferior to the prophets, you might feel that way. Capability-wise, I'm, I'm, I'm ill-equipped to take on the world like them. Please know that you are equipped in the same way. Not everybody necessarily needs to be a prophet crying out like Micah or Jeremiah, but the resources are there for every Christian. The prophets had the words given to them in terms of dreams, but we have the Word of God given to us in print. They had the Spirit working with them, but we have the Spirit in greater measure. Romans 8.11 says that the Spirit of Him who raised us from the dead dwells in us. So Micah comes in the power of God, and a part of that package is to come with the judgment of God. Again, verse 8, verse 3-8, But truly I am, a, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment. Now, what, what's he talking about here? Judgment. I mean, just with the context, we might think that it's a judgment like a punishment that he's, he's going to talk about with, uh, a little bit later on. But that's not the judgment here. It's rather a discernment. This is a discernment that the leaders are missing. They're missing it, but God can graciously provide it. Let's, I'm going to back up just a little bit to uh, the earlier verses in chapter 3. Verse, verse 1 and 2. Let's read those. Verse 1 and 2 of Micah chapter 3. And I said, Here, I pray you, O heads of Jacob and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment? who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones. This is our message for princes of today. They have to know good and evil. They have to know good and evil in, in order to do what? And as we see in Romans, we even read it today. That was our scripture reading today, Romans 13. A remarkable parallel, a remarkable consistency to the Old Testament principle that rulers have to uphold good and punish evil. I know some people say that there's been a continental shift, a big, big change from the way the civil government was in the Old Testament to the New. Well, it's clear with a parallel between Romans 13 and what we read here in Micah chapter 3 that it's about the same thing. It's about good and evil. Is it not for you to know judgment, says the Micah to the princes? Isn't this what you're here for? It's important to communicate this to the princes of the day. In fact, I, I don't know if we should really begin by presenting what is good and what is evil until uh, the civil magistrate has an understanding that is fundamental to their job. And why do I say that? Well, you know, it's, you, you have to get people's attention. And you will notice in the Bible that there's a lot of attention-getting uh, statements. You have to get people's attention, and you have to tell them why. You have to give them an incentive to listen to what you have to say. And civil magistrates are very busy. Um, legislators, judges, sheriffs. And before we tell them what is good and what is not as good, we, we, we need to be able to explain to them why we want 30 minutes in their schedule. And it's because this is their job to know that. Now, 
What happens if they don't listen? What happens if they do not follow the good and the, the evil, the distinction between the two? Look at verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4. Actually, yeah, chapter 3, verse 4. Then they shall cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves in their ill, Ill doings. Those of you who are old enough to remember the attacks of 9 11, you, you may remember that back in those times, our civil leaders got religious. There was lots of calls for prayer, lots of talks of God. I remember that President Bush, in, in, in probably his first address to the nation on this, talked uh, about religious things, and he even quoted from Isaiah. Just because they do that, just because we are calling out to the Lord doesn't mean that the Lord is going to answer. It's grossly against the Creator, the, the, the Savior, the, the Sustainer of the universe, the, the one who gives us every breath that we have. It's very much against Him to say, for example, sodomy is good. If we do those kinds of things, then the civil magistrate cannot expect God to listen to them. Well, let's get back to our primary passage today. Let's go back um, towards uh, 3, 3, 9, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Let's read that. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all iniquity. Now, there's a couple things to say here on this. Remember that we're talking about God's gracious way with society and also our role in administering it. What does God want us to do with, with, this, with, this, uh, with this knowledge? And there's a certain way that we need to bring the message to the civil magistrate. Listen to what Matthew Henry wrote on this. Ministers must be faithful to greet men in reproving them for their sins, but they not, must not be rude and uncivil to them. Let me say that again. Ministers must be faithful to great men in reproving them for their sins, but they must not be rude and uncivil to them. During the COVID lockdowns, we saw quite a bit of uh, clips on YouTube and Twitter and you know, all, the, all the news sources that we go to that are a little bit different than the major news sources of, of these meetings, these town council meetings, and there was a lot of tension there. I remember one where, where a lady uh, was so verbal and so strong uh, against the city. I think it was because they were closing down the schools and she didn't like that. But, but she was escorted out of the room by the, by the, the deputy. Now, of course, it's not right for her to be escorted out of the room. She, she needs to be heard. But it's, it also wasn't very effective the, way, effective the way that she was talking to them. I think that if she was more respectful, it would have been better. And there were, so there was bad examples of that, but there were some really good ones. I remember a doctor who was calmly presenting a case against a lot of the um, mandates. And and, and, and they kept trying to interrupt him, but he just kept talking. But he was doing it very uh, graciously, with dignity. He's bringing, bringing the truth. So those are good examples, but the, the best examples are really from the Bible. We have the, the example of Moses, who came to Pharaoh calmly, firmly, and even, I would say, respectfully. Nathan, of course, re he rebukes David with respect. Paul, uh, Esther from the Old Testament, and even Jesus himself was, respe was respectful of the civil magistrate, even though the civil magistrate was about to crucify him. Micah says to them, hear this, I pray you. So when we bring the grace of God in his word, we want to do it graciously. But we also want to do it directly. Again, back to the verse, back, back to 3.9. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all iniquity. Listen to this. This is no namby-pamby 
passive-aggressive statement. Micah's not sending a text. He's not creating a meme and shooting it out on Twitter. Nor, nor is he talking like to an assistant. Like sometimes you'll call a congressman and maybe you'll talk to a staffer on the phone. He's talking directly. Now this is kind of difficult today sometimes to go eyeball to eyeball with um, some of our civil magistrates, uh, especially at the, at the national level, but it can be done at the state level and it can be done at, at the local level pretty easily. Local representatives can be rebuked graciously, but directly. John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't shy away, did he? We read this in Mark 6.18. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. It's pretty simple. You can't do that, King Herod. One of the most breathtaking statements in the Bible, I think, is Nathan's rebuke of David that we mentioned. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And, and you, you know the story after, after um, David has sinned and he has Uriah killed. And uh, Nathan comes. And he gives the story of the man who just had one ewe lamb. And the rich man killed that one ewe, ewe lamb. And, and, and David says, says, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And what does Nathan say to him? Thou art the man. That's punchy. That's gracious, but it's very direct. And Micah does the same sort of thing here. He addresses them directly. But he says in, in verse 9 again that they abhor judgment and pervert all iniquity. And we already talked about the, the, the judgment there. You know, it's, we, we have a civil magistrate who, is, who has got it backwards, flipped it around. And what Mike is saying and what Romans 13 is saying is whatever you do, don't get that backwards. You cannot say that sodomy is good. And you cannot say that murder is health care. You caught it all backwards. Now, verses 10 through 11 here in chapter 3, the list a whole bunch of sins directly. This is what you are doing wrong. Blood iniquity. If innocent blood is not atoned for by the execution of the murderer, then the sin stays upon the land. Now, remember, I'm going to call us back, that we're talking about God's gracious approach to society. So how is all of this condemnation gracious? Well, it's gracious because of the timing. It's coming before the judgment. And it's laying out what needs to change. You know, sometimes that we, we, we see in the Bible where God says he's going to do something and a nation repents and God changes his mind. Okay, of course, that's speaking as a man. God never changes his man. He's not a man that he should lie. He's consistent. But what happens is God will say, this is going to happen unless you change. That's a gracious thing. And that's, that's what this is all about here. The fact that God does not immediately lay waste to rulers is something worth thinking about. Numbers 14, 18 talks about punishment, but it talks about the long-suffering of God that comes before that punishment. The Lord is long-suffering and great of mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means killing, uh, uh, clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. But he is long-suffering before that punishment. So we present God's rebuke respectfully, faithfully, as Matthew Henry said it, and it's direct. When a parent rebukes a child by the word of God and the child repents, God's grace is at work. When a person does that, when an adult does that, and also when a society does that. So far we've seen Micah bringing a rebuke against civil leaders, the princes, the heads of the houses of Jacob. But let's go back. Again, I know I'm bouncing around here quite a bit, but verse 5 of chapter 3. And it's not the civil leaders here who have messed up. It was the ecclesiastical leaders 
the church. So let's read uh, 3 verse 5. Chapter 3 verse 5. Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry, Peace, and he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against them. So what are these church leaders doing? And later on it says priests. So we got prophet and priest. What are the church leaders doing? Well, they were bringing a message of peace, which is good. But the problem is there is no peace. That's not what the Lord was saying. That's not the word from the Holy Spirit. And, and it sounds good, but it's not gracious. It sounds loving, but it's very unloving. Wrong preaching causes people to err. That's what it says here in the verse. Concerning the prophets that make my people err. Now, it could be that these people that uh, Micah is rebuking, maybe they're not even regenerate. Maybe they're not even saved. But I'm going to say that um, if there is a church that's acting like a church, they probably need to be rebuked as a church. In other words, if there is an apostate um, denomination or an apostate pastor, that pastor needs to be rebuked. Not, I, I don't think we can just say, well, it's not a true church anyway, so we're not going to spend any time on it. Because it says here that they make people err. And, and this is something that um, I confess to you I haven't done yet. And so I'm preaching to myself. I, I hope the Lord gives me grace and respect and a way to do this, but it needs to be done. The biggest error of the prophets and priests then is the biggest error of the church leaders today. They're essentially saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. When you hear a pastor say that everything's fine, then they're always wrong, okay? When, you, when a pastor says that everything's fine, they're always wrong. We have a Methodist church in our town. It's a, it's a nice little Methodist church um, towards downtown. Uh, it's a pretty church, like most of the old Methodist church are, but it's a dead church, like most of them are. And there's a sign that says, Jesus didn't condemn people and neither do we. And uh, so we have to think, is that so? I, you know, at some point, I need to say to this lady, have you ever read uh, Matthew 23? The whole chapter is on condemnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. The whole chapter is a condemnation of unrepentant people. So there is condemnation for the unrepentant, but there's grace for those who repent. Now, this Methodist church, be, you know, before we get too high-browed as Presbyterians, let's remember that most Presbyterian churches in the United States are the same ilk. I, I looked up some, some numbers you know, let's just take the major denominations, PCA, OPC, and PCUSA. Okay, those are kind of the, the big three. Um, what, you know, what, what are most of Presbyterian churches today? Well, let's just look at the numbers. The PCA church, and this is in 2021, has 378, 389 members, about 380 thousand members in the United States. The OPC is significantly smaller. It has a little over 32,000 members. So we got 380, 32,000. PCUSA. PCUSA that have gone off the reservation. They're, they're no longer orthodox. How many do they have? 1.2 million people. Four times the PCA and the OPC combined together. So there is a lot of peace, peace in this land, even in our own circles. On this peace, peace where there is no peace. You know, every, everybody knows Patrick Henry, Henry's line, give me liberty or give me death. But that actually comes at the end of, uh, of a speech. And he, he used this concept of peace, peace where there is no peace. Now, of course, it wasn't ecclesiastical. This was more... Uh, national, more military. But listen to, what, listen to what Patrick Henry wrote. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. 
the war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. So again, different context, but this is the idea that people are saying peace, peace, and there is no peace. Just as a military and a nation cannot declare peace when there's a conflict of conviction and ethics, so a church leader cannot say there's peace in the land when we are at odds with God. So, God graciously corrects church leaders from the Bible. Well, as we've been walking through this, there, there's, there's something else that you may have noticed, something that's in very, very much in plain view, but I want us to call it out. And that is that Micah has been rebuking the civil magistrate and the church leaders, both prophets and priests, in a certain way. Okay, so it, it says, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err. And then it also says, Hear this, I pray you, you heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel. Do you see that he is calling out the leaders? This is a societal rebuke. Sometimes there comes a personal rebuke. But this is not that. This is the heads of the house of Jacob, the princes. This is the prophets. And this is the priest. Now, they're bringing them together. He's talking, he, he actually goes from civil to ecclesiastical, back to civil, very seamlessly. And it's because of this mindset, this, this knowledge, that those two are connected. They're under the same Lord. And usually, when one goes down, then the other goes down with it. Have you ever noticed that? When the church goes down, the civil magistrate goes down. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the main thing that we, that we think about. But there's also the element when the civil magistrate goes down, the church goes down. And that's why we as Christians need to be very concerned about a civil magistrate that is not following the Lord. Because we cannot think that that's not going to affect the church. A civil magistrate that's not following the Lord is also going to affect the church, just as the church not following the Lord is going to affect the civil magistrate. And the reason is, is because if you, if you decouple those two, then God's gracious plan for society is rejected. The way that it's supposed to work is that each one of them keep each other in check. Both are ministers in Christ's kingdom. Uh, if you haven't ever looked at the difference between the American Western, so the, the, the American Westminster Confession of Faith, Faith and the original British Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a very, very important part. The original Westminster Confession says that the civil magistrate is supposed to suppress all blasphemy and heresy. The civil magistrate is supposed to do that. The American version takes that out. It, it, it basically deteeths the civil magistrate for anything dealing with faith in the land. Uh, so, you know, we, we have to think about this. You know, Maybe somebody can explain it to me. How, how are we in America supposed to suppress heresies and blasphemies? Those have to be suppressed. They're going to come up. So what do we do? Well, the church can do something. We, we preach, and we have church discipline, and that can wind up in excommunication, and that's a very good thing to do. But the problem with that approach is that, first of all, it often falls short of the penalty that's in the Scripture for blasphemies and heresies. But secondly, when somebody is ex excommunicated in America, what do they do? Let's go to the next church. Right? They go to the next church. And, and if, they're, if we were actually following the Westminster Confession original from a national perspective, they wouldn't be able to do that. So they're supposed to work together as a team. Civil magistrate and the church are a team. Um, you remember that, that 
thing that we were talking about, the good and the evil, and to have that judgment. Well, here's our question. How are they going to know it unless they know God's Word? So this, the church has to preach the civil magistrate. The church is a gracious approach. Um, and this the interdependence is also God's grace. Well, as we, uh, as we go to the last section of, of the sermon, uh, we, we want to see a message of hope and blessing. But, we, but before we get there, we need to look at verse 12. Verse 12 is the last verse of, of chapter 3. What if Israel and Judah continue down this path? They don't listen to the rebuke of Micah. Look at verse 12. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as high as the places of the forest. So, because of both the civil and the ecclesiastical shortfalls, then the, the nation as a whole is, is going to be plowed as a field. And so we, we talked about the connection of the civil and ecclesiastical, but do you also see that there's a connection between the leaders and the people, between the covenant heads? This is federal headship. This is federal headship. We know about this in families. We were just talking about the, the book last night at the Sanford's house. I think it's uh, The Federal Husband by Doug Wilson. But, but do we know, do we think, are, are we inclined to think about the federal headship of ecclesiastical leaders and of civil leaders? Here, they're together. The whole nation is going to be plowed as a field. Who's to blame for this? Look at this. Therefore shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field. You catch that? For your sake. <clears throat> if this happens, Jerusalem goes down. And it did go down, not long after the preaching of Micah. And it will be for the leader's sake. They are responsible. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't realize that you were responsible and something went wrong? I mean, that's a lot of what's happening today. Children and young adults, have you experienced this? If you haven't, you, you will. Something will go wrong, and you realize that you were the one that was supposed to do this thing, and, uh, and so something happens, something goes bad, but you, you were to blame. Now, if the parents are gracious, if the parents are bringing God's grace and mercy, what are they going to do? They're going to let the children know exactly what they're responsible for because we want them to do it right. President Truman had a, had a sign on his desk, I think you all know this, the buck stops here. And it's that, that sort of an idea. It's the, the leaders have got to realize that they are federally, covenantally responsible. I don't know if Truman had, President Truman, had the full sense of, of what his duty actually was, but at least he was moving the right direction. I think that we need to take it further. Usually it's the leader's fault because he either did not use God's word to figure out what was right or what was wrong, or the second thing, secondly, because he didn't execute the judgment that he was supposed to do. So the, the first one is about knowing good and evil, and the second one is about doing what's required with the good and evil. This was Eli's downfall. His sons were evil, and what did he do? He restrained them not. And let's remember that Eli was a church leader, and therefore a societal leader. So our message from the Lord today in this sermon that God deals graciously with societies. And probably the biggest way that he does that is by letting leaders know that they are responsible. And he warns them. Leaders, you are responsible for take us the right direction. And let's admit, this chapter 3, it ends on a somber note of judgment. Zion will be plowed as a field. And then there's a chapter break. Chapter 4. Let's remember, chapter breaks, are they, are they inspired? Are they original? No, they're not. So let's just remove the chapter break for a minute. Let's remove it in our minds. And then we're constrained to see a connection. We see this connection of the condemnation of chapter 3 to the victory and the hope of chapter 4. 
What are we to make of this? Why such a change? Let's go ahead and read Micah chapter 4, 1 through 4. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord, sorry, mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the Lord of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth out of Zion. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. I didn't, I didn't catch uh, until um, I think uh, Kevin was reading today. And he was reading from Isaiah chapter 2. If you compare Micah chapter 1 to Isaiah chapter 2, it's almost identical. And that says a lot. That says a lot about the consistency of God and it also says a lot about the, uh, the, the importance of, of having creeds and a consistency across the church. That's remarkable. I mean, this, this was something of a liturgy. It was, part of the, the, it was part of the prophet's corporate message. So I want to talk a little bit about it as, as, as we wind down here. When we read that, I hope that you saw that there, there was a condition of nations and there was also a causal relationship. There's, there's a lot going on with this. There, there is an establishment of a mountain and then there's others running into that mountain and then there's a law going forth. Uh, and all of this is in the context of the last days. But in the last days, it's very important for us to understand last days because there's a lot of misunderstanding in America today. There's really uh, two possible biblical answers and there's one that's not possible biblically. And the non-possible one is the one that's most prevalent in America today and that is that the last days are at the end of history. Sometime way off in the future. Well, that's, that's directly ruled out by the first two verses of Hebrews. And Hebrews is very important because it's talking about the new covenant coming in. It's very much about where we are today as compared to where we have been. And these are the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in past times unto the fathers and the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the world. There are other verses that say the same thing, but this one is enough. The Spirit has said the last days, the author of Hebrew was writing in the last days. So that one view that last days are at the end, uh, that's not biblically possible. Uh, so the, it's called the futurist view. Now, Pastor Kaiser has a handout, and I can email it to you if you want, that shows that the last days actually started about 1400 B.C., and they culminated in 70 A.D. And he bases this upon the prophecies and the promises and how they were fulfilled for the last days. Uh, Now, that's, that's one of the possible biblical views. It's not the... Uh, most common one, even in Reformed circles. The most common one in Reformed circles is that the last days started when Christ came, and then there's sort of two subdivisions of, of, of the primary view. That last days either ended in 70 AD or we are in the last days now. But the main thing is that, that, that it started with Christ. Uh, either one of those views... Uh, can be supported from the Bible. And either one of those views uh, comports perfectly 
with what we have read today because we're seeing the connection. We're seeing the connection in verse 3 about a current condemnation, and we're also seeing this idea of the last days is not something that happens way off in the future, but it happens in history. People are living in the last days, okay? I think Pastor Kajal makes a compelling case, and, uh, and, I, and I would say that it is uh, probably uh, uh, the, the one that, that I would recommend. Um, but the whole thing is that the passage meets Micah's audience where they are, and it meets us where they are. Now, does this say, both what we read today in Isaiah chapter 2 or Micah chapter 5, that the worldwide conversion was established when the mountain of the Lord was established. No, they're two different things. We have to know that. Worldwide conversion does not happen. That's not the house of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord. Rather, the mountain of the house of the Lord is causal. It's something that happens in history, and it causes other nations to run into it. A magnet that's sitting on a table, it doesn't move. It remains at rest until another magnet is brought to it and, and, and comes into it. And that, that's what happens when the, when the mountain of the house of the Lord was established. And we have Pentecost and we have the Holy Spirit. And God says, go forward. Now all of a sudden, nations are coming into contact with the mountain of the Lord. It is established. This means, again, we're talking about something in history. So what this means for Jerusalem is that there's a way to reverse course. There's another option, a good option. The mountain image is also important. There's a, there's a book that I have here that uh, Pastor Clark gave me. It may be one day my favorite book, but I need to finish reading it first. So I can't recommend a book that I haven't uh, completely read, but... This is by Pierre Courtial, and Pierre Courtial is a Reformed theologian in, in France. He, he died in 2009, but this man is an amazing, faithful man and a scholar that we should learn about, I think. He's a Reconstructionist, theonomist, comes in the, in the wonderful tradition of the French Huguenots, and he does a very good job of showing this mountain theme, how it's important. It's, it's actually um, a, 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 a very poignant uh, way to understand how God is dealing with his people. He talks about how the, the mountain, well, actually the Garden of Eden was elevated. The rivers flowed out from it. And then we have Mount Ariat and Mount Sinai, and it, you know, it finally goes to the mountain of the Lord and to the uh, into Jerusalem, that the new mountain is established in the last days, and that the last days are either those times, you know, up until 70 AD, or maybe we're still in the last times now. It doesn't matter. It was established, and the fact that the mountain is established is a game changer. And we are f- very familiar with the uh, the Great Commission, and, and, and we talk about the fact that this is not just individuals, but nations. I'm going to read something from Pierre Courtial. This is from his book. When we read the mandate to make disciples of all nations, we should be careful to recognize all that is meant here. It's not make disciples from the nations, as if the conversion of individuals from within every nation is all that's intended but rather make disciples of the nations themselves. The Greek verb matieu corresponds to the noun matateas, disciple, and can be equated with the English verb to disciple. Just as individuals can be discipled, so all nations must be disciples. The personal individual sense can and certainly must be upheld, but as we have previously said, the social scope of the commandment must not be downplayed. Nations will be discipled, all of them, according to this passage in chapter 4 and many other passages in the Bible. 
But how will all this happen? How will we get to the state of no war, no armies? Uh, every man, you know, a, a vine, his own vine, his own fig tree. What's going to happen by God's gracious approach to individuals, but also to nations? By calling out of the leaders. Remember that we should call them out respectfully, but directly. And, and, and by the realization that for their sake, for the civil and the ecclesiastical leaders, for their sake, judgment will come, if it does come. Our message at the church is that we don't have to wait for the mountain of the Lord to be established. We can run into it now. And also, it's very important for us to happen, that, to, to realize that this is going to happen incrementally. That we, I could talk a long time about, uh, about Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 2 and uh, Matthew chapter 5, the city on the hill, and how it is causal and it helps nations come. It's not like we all rise at the same time, but rather societies can come unto the Lord today. What this means is that if a nation repents and covenants with God, not only will it be blessed, but it will become a mountain of the house of the Lord, and it will cause others to run into it. When we combine what we've read here with Christ's commission to the nations, that is an unavoidable conclusion. It's a wonderful conclusion. That's not to say that nations will like collapse into each other because there's still going to be distinct nations. We see that in Revelation and the eschatological promises. But the, 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 the wonderful thing, the, the game-changing thing, is that now the good can influence the bad. Well, I said I was going to wind, wind up. But we still have a little bit more. Not much. The last thing I want us to see is that the nations are not just types of things we see as nations today. These principles of civil and ecclesiastical authority, they apply to cities, to counties, to states. In fact, an argument can be made that those, are, those things are more closely aligned to the biblical concept of a nation than the United States of America. The United States of America would, is, is really, biblically speaking, more of a federation of nations. In fact, in the book of Micah here, um, in, uh, in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, there's a bunch of names. Thou inhabitants of Sefer, inhabitants of Zanion, Bethzeo, Meroth. All of these are cities. In Matthew 11, 20 through 21, we read this. This is what... This is talking about Jesus. Then he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works were, which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And Christ uh, pronounces a curse upon the city. He condemns the city for the unrighteousness collectively. And we have, to, we have to conclude, because God is just, that if he will condemn a city for unrighteousness, he will bless a city for righteousness. And since the mountain of the Lord is established, others can run into it. Well, I just want to uh, encourage you I hope that, that we can see that we have the same power as the prophets. I hope that, that we see that the Bible not only says what we should do as the church, but gives us a way to do it. And I hope that you can see that the mountain of the Lord is established and there's an option. There is an option, a winsome way that we can present a better way for the nations to run into it. So I encourage you to think about this. Think about this in your families. As your church is making a transition to a new building, perhaps it's time to, uh, and I think you're already thinking about how to engage, not just individuals. We're not saying don't engage individuals. 
or saying add to engaging individuals the gracious ways of God to societies. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you uh, for teaching us your word. We thank you for bringing it to us and uh, help us to remember it. Help us to treasure it as, as rubies, as more precious than gold. That's what it is. And we, th- we, we thank you for helping us by your spirit and revealing us your word. In Jesus' name, amen.